And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic After the madness of Portugal, MotoGP settled right down in Argentina. All we had was a sprint race being won from 15th on the grid, Valentino Rossi's team getting its first MotoGP victory and thrusting its rider into the championship lead, and our reigning champion crashing out of second place and some more Repsol Honda woe, leaving only 17 bikes on the grid, and the weekend's fastest team getting nowhere near the podium. So in other words, this was MotoGP at its very strange best. I'm Matt Beer, this is the Race MotoGP podcast, and here to talk through the Argentina with- weekend with me, uh, Simon Patterson, who has stolen the commentary booth at Thomas de Rio Hondo to record this from, because the press room was a bit noisy, but he's found one without any kind of... F- well, you have got some furniture, you've got a chair to use as a table. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 a system. It works. <laughs> it's also not obvious from the camera that you are just that you are sat on the floor, and uh, also with some furniture found in Harunchi. So last week after Portimao, we were all kind of feeling kind of half enthralled, half kind of unnerved by what had gone on in the first race of the season. How are you two feeling at the end of this one? Tired. Well, that's a great answer, obviously, because it's, you know, it's quite quite late in the day, or should I say, the next day, so quite early. But yeah, tired. But in terms of in terms of the new format, I mean, my my thoughts are more or less unchanged. We're still pretty much rolling the dice, but we're we're still, you know, the format's more exciting. It's 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 better in terms of the entertainment, in terms of the show. I think there's no real argument there. But again, there was some unease going on in terms of in terms of the sprint action i think uh yeah and i don't think there's any merit to suggestions that riders are going to settle down further into the season they're not really the settling down sort i i i think that um series bosses dorna have perhaps made a bit of a mistake um law of unintended consequences and all of that because they've managed to make saturday the unmissable day of the weekend yeah like creating like this truly awesome sprint race um that that you know regardless of how uncomfortable it makes me feel and it still does make me feel quite uncomfortable because it's sketchy um it's the race to watch it was you know inarguably more exciting than sunday's race um which i don't think was a consequence of sunday being in wet conditions necessarily um yeah it's it's good entertainment it's just a shame that that good entertainment comes with what feels like a fairly significant risk, as we saw with you know yet another rider injured and hospitalized during Saturday's sprint. Yes, yeah, so obviously Jean Mir went down on the on the opening lap of the sprint, uh, went to hospital for what was initially reported as a you know an ankle checkup, but then turned out to be uh, what was it head and spinal trauma, but maybe not as serious as that sounds. Basically, either he was concussed. Or he had something else that had a very weird diagnosis that I looked up on Google and didn't understand. But in any case, going from Honda's release, there is some hope of him making Kota, but it it's ruled out him ruled him out of the Sunday race. So we were down to we we're down to seventeen riders out of twenty two. 
And I tell you what, you know to 17 riders when you work in MotoGP because it's a lot less media material to, to sift through. So in that way, it's actually okay. It's a shame it's coming as a result of people, you know, being hurt and sat in hospital. Uh, yeah, the, the good thing is uh, this format, the part of this format that was easier is that for all of the various complaints about Termas, the Rio Hondo, the Argentine venue, it is just a much more comfortable watch than Portimao, isn't it? In terms of the layouts, in terms of how wide the track is, in terms of the undulations that, you know, don't exist. In terms of the crashes that it causes, you know, for all the bumps and the dust and the low, low, low grip that all the riders were talking about all weekend, the crashes were kept basically to an absolute minimum apart from Mir's, Mir's unfortunate shunt, which is the kind of thing that you know, can happen in every circuit. But yeah, I think I haven't com 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 compared the, the crash numbers, but it, it felt much, much more serene in that regard. Although it also helps that there were fewer riders, I guess. We, we were having a, a bit of a conversation in the media center about it earlier and the general consensus was this weekend was okay but my god what are sprint races going to be like at Phillip Island and Mugello whenever yeah. we get to you know those more traditional tight narrow circuits yeah. where you don't have a lot of room to make a mistake <clears throat> you know the, there's not an awful lot of room at Phillip Island um, there's not an awful lot of room in parts of Mugello and other circuits too, um, you know, there's not a lot of room in parts of Saxon Ring. And we, yeah, sprint races at those circuits, mm, you know, for the, the we're, we're kind of lucky. Well, next week, we're lucky at that we're at a, a modern facility in the form of the Circuit of the Americas, not with next week, the week after, which will be quite, you know, it's big and it's open and it's broad. Um, Hareth will be sketchy because it's another place where there's already concerns about runoff and, and room. Um, yeah, I think that's Le Mans, not great in places. It, it's going to be a season of of sort of there being circuits where we anticipate mm, Saturday's going to be bad. We'll, uh, we'll talk in some depth about what happened on Saturday a bit later in the podcast, because like you say, it was the race of the weekend. But uh, the Grand Prix remains, in theory, the headliner. So let's get into that. And Valentino Rossi is a MotoGP winner again in Team Boss form. You know, that, that's, a, that's a nice headline. I like being able to feature Valentino Rossi in website headlines still because he remains such a big draw, even though he's actually been you know, away quite a long time and quite low profile in MotoGP terms since he retired. Um, but yeah, VR46 won with Marco Bezzecchi, absolutely dominant in wet conditions on the older spec Ducati. So um, what does this mean for the rest of the season? You know, this feels a little bit like Ennio Bastianini at the start of last year, just uh, a year old Ducati sticking it to the to the works teams early on. Bastianini stuck around in the title fight for quite a long time. So what are we expecting from, from Bears and VR46? Uh, it does feel a lot like, like Bastianini, but you know, before that, speaking of headlines gonna share a story i guess about how the sausage is made a little bit in terms of the website <laughs> um so i i clocked bezeki as having really good pace on friday already and so did everybody else and because of where he was starting after you know saturday's qualifying and because of how he looked in the saturday sprint and he looked amazing basically he had so many various random incidents and still ended up nearly winning the thing uh, I was sure that in the dry, he just walks away with it as long as he gets any semblance of a normal start. So I I wrote a feature, you know, saying that at around 3 a.m. my time or something like that. Went to sleep, woke up, then morning in Argentina rolled around and it was raining. And I was like, okay, well, we, sh we shouldn't run that. 
because the whole thing is about his pace in the dry. And maybe, you know, it's my stupid fault anyway for writing something about a dry race at a weekend where clearly the forecast was a bit sketch. <laughs> but I also was like, well, that's probably goodbye to his first win. It's probably going to come later in the season because I always expected it later in the season. And he went and did that. Like He won it even more easily than he would have in the dry, even though I think he also would have won it in the dry. And I think his reaction was absolutely the same. He woke up, he saw rain, he was like, oh no. Then he absolutely monstered the morning warm-up. He was like okay, might might still be able to do that. And it was just gone up the road. He won by four seconds. He could have won by 10 if he needed to win by 10. If there was a 10-second penalty, then he, I think he could have genuinely won by 10. But he just absolutely was, you know, calmed down for the, for the rest of the race. Maybe Zarko would have got within 10, but I don't think anybody else would have. Absolutely spectacular ride. I realize I haven't really answered your question very well, Matt. I, I don't know about his perspectives into the season. That's a tougher one to assess. But when you have speed like that, I mean, Bastinini's pace didn't really go away last season. And he maybe should have been closer to the fight, title fight than he actually was. So, I mean, you can dream a little if you want, I think. A little bit. That, uh, that unpublished feature that Val wrote predicting what actually happened, but in slightly different weather, I think we will piece together what we can of that to use it in other pieces during the week ahead. But yeah, it was it was an amusing conversation in our, in our Slack channel when... We looked at the rain and went, nah, all the whole this whole thesis is based on a dry race. Let's just park that and revisit the themes. And maybe we should have um you know, at that moment we were having that conversation was as the warm up was unfolding and, and Bezeki was going fastest in that in the rain. So maybe we should have just retooled it and run it and looked very prophetic, but nah, never mind. <laughs> um there was no doubting his pace in the dry. Uh we spoke to Alicia Spagaro after the sprint race on Saturday and after that phenomenal start from Brad Bender that we're going to come to later. Um, and, and Alesh said, if Bez had made Bender start, he would have won by five seconds because his pace was so good. Well, turns out basically 24 hours later, he he made something akin to Bender's start, although he had a bit less work to do, and he won by basically five seconds. Um, so the, the pace wasn't a surprise, but I think... No one expected it to translate so well into the wet. And I think maybe that's because we're getting into this new era, maybe, of MotoGP where you don't have the same wet and dry riders and performances that we had in the past because the Michelin wet tires are so phenomenally good that if you've paced in the dry, you've paced in the wet because it's not that much more slippy anymore. You know, the guys, it was it was properly wet for the race. It was It was wet. And they were doing like six seconds off the lap record. Yeah. And the race lap record here is, I think, a Bridgestone lap record. It goes back to like 2014 or 2015. In fact, it might actually be Valentino Rossi's. Um, you know, it, it's a long-standing record. Um, and, and, you know, there's a lot to be said for Michelin. They, they draw criticism in the dry quite a bit. But in the wet, they are phenomenal. Um, and I think... Maybe that was reflected in the fact that the, the rain wasn't a huge upset. Yeah, shout out to Michelin, who you know, do not sponsor this podcast or anything, but really deserve kudos here. Because every time like a, a relatively young, rookie-ish MotoGP rider speaks, you just gush about those wet tires. They, they love them so much. They love the grip they offer. They just, yeah, they just love them. And clearly, look, we've had, what, we've had two really, really wet sessions on Sunday. Two crashes. Two pretty minor crashes in, in conditions that were... I mean, genuinely brutal. Yeah. Kudos. Bravo. And yeah, I think I think your point about, you know, wet and dry riders are a little bit right. I still think there is 
some differentiation, as, as we've seen with one of the manufacturers that should have been quite good in the dry and was abysmal in the wet. But it, there is no like clear specialism, I don't think, which is why I, I did roll my eyes a little bit when on Twitter people went like, oh, so, you know, Jack Miller is going to win this. I, I mean, he didn't make it out of Q1 in mixed conditions, did he? I, I saw no reason to expect him to win. I would, I would have gone for someone like Johan Zarco, which, you know, but I, I didn't see the, the Bezeki thing coming, honestly. No, I, I had a moment when Jack Miller was going down the inside of about four people at once on the first lap, and I did wonder if that was what what the story was going to be. But um, no, he he didn't end up didn't end up really featuring in the end, did he? But um, sticking with uh, with the guy who did actually win, Bezeki, you know, we we used a Valentino Rossi headline on the website, and uh, you know, lots of other outlets will be drawing attention to the Valentino Rossi link here. How how much Valentino Rossi actually is there in this team? Now it's up and running properly. Um, so directly after the race, uh, I, I popped under the paddock and found a truly ecstatic Uccio Salucci, uh, Valentino Rossi's best mate and the, the team principal there. And he he admitted that they have worked very hard. The team have worked very, very hard to make this happen. Um and, you know, I think it's pretty obvious that Valentino hasn't been to many races since he retired and became a team boss. I think he's been to two so far. Um, but the the point that Uccio made was that it's almost irrelevant how much work Valentino puts into it because all of it is irrelevant without him. All of it is impossible without him. You know, this is his baby. This is his project. And, you know, for, for years, we interviewed Valentino Rossi when he was a MotoGP rider and he had a Moto2 and a Moto3 team. And we asked him, you know, was the goal MotoGP one day? And he was always quite coy about it. And and then, you know, tonight in our interview, Joe was like, oh, yeah, no, we've been telling the guys in the Moto3 team they're going to be MotoGP mechanics since 2014. Like, <laughs> this has been the long-term project for, for a decade. Um, and I don't think there's anyone else in the sport maybe with the same ability and drive and financing to, to make something like this all happen for, you know, not just the, not just the team, but the writers in the team as well, because they're VR 46 Academy pro, you know, prospects. Valentino Rossi has grown pretty much everything about today's win from scratch. Um, and yeah, I think w without him, we wouldn't be having this conversation maybe about Bezeki full stop. Yeah, this is going to be my point exactly. Valley doesn't have to like hire the the accountants and you know sign up sign off under the insurance or whatever. That is an important things to do. Somebody has to do them. But Valentino Rossi has his imprint on you know the rider who won today. Uh, he, you know he trains all of those guys basically. Maybe not like a full time focused job, but as a family type thing, it's his win. It's his team and it's his win. Maybe it's not like his team in the traditional way that we see a team owner, but you know, it's 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 his. His imprint is clear. It could have been a, a Rossi one-two of sorts, uh, and it looked like it would be at one point as Pekka Banyaya, who is another Rossi protege, of course, but not in Rossi's team, uh, moved into second place and uh, and looked quite comfortable there for a few moments, and then something that was a bit of a kind of old-school Banyaya move happened, and they ended up throwing it down the road. Now. Banyaya's tone about that crash was really interesting after the race. I thought, you, you know, he, he is now a world champion. We've talked already this season about how a lot of the doubts that seem to still be niggling at him seem to be thoroughly resolved by winning that title. But yeah, a little glimpse of, of the old Banyaya today. 
Yeah, you know that you know sort of internet image meme from Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where Leonardo DiCaprio is watching a movie and he points to the screen excitedly because he sees something familiar on the screen. Uh, whether you know that or not, you th- I think you understand the the premise that this was. A I was going to say you often mock me for not having seen any films, so but I, I get the point you're making. Uh, a good movie, by the way. But yeah, that's yeah, neither here nor there. Um, Seconded. Um, but yeah, it was just it was a very familiar sight. Like I've seen this this movie before, and this is not you know being mean to Pecco because from Pecco's comments it is extremely clear that he has seen this movie before and he does not like it and never wanted to see it again. Uh, he said he felt you know comfortable on the bike. He said he felt relatively in control after passing Alex Marquez for second. He said he accepted second place because Marco Bezzecchi was absolutely gone up the road. Just supposed to bring it home in second and then the bike went at the the penultimate corner uh and he was very upset and disappointed and, and puzzled and you know it's lucky for him that the rest of this season so far has been just so good to him in every single way and also obviously it took a very good show from him at portimao but yeah he can afford this but I'm more, a little more concerned about sort of the, the mental impact that can be there. And it'll be a real test of his newfound, you know, self-confidence of how, how easily he can brush it off. And he brushed off a lot of things last year. So him and I uh, sat down on Thursday for a, a one-on-one interview. And we talked a lot in the interview about sort of confidence and about the way that he's, you know, come into the season as a champion and what that's given him as a, as a bit of an extra boost. And... Based on the body language we saw from him this afternoon, we might have to sort of park that interview until he wins a race or two again because he was like a completely different person today. He was, um, he, he, there was a real nervousness, a real, yeah, real, real lack of confidence in his whole persona today, which we haven't seen since like the middle of last season. Um, it felt different. Um, I, I, tweeted like minutes before seconds before he crashed to basically say well this new Peko Bagnaya looks like someone that's actually okay in the rain now and then he went and crashed um and, and part of me still stands by that because the old Peko in the rain would have crashed out of 14th um whereas this one crashed out of second without doing as far as he's concerned anything wrong because he, he doesn't really know what happened um and neither does the data from what he said so the real tell now will be how he comes back from this. He has to come back strong. He has to come out in Texas and at least just top a session or something, even if he's not going to win both races and qualify on pole and take the lap record. But I feel like he has to do something to just kind of say, you know, to himself that, that his head's still in it. Because that is how rattled he looked today. It wasn't the, the cleanest weekend all throughout. I mean, the Banyai pace, I think, pretty clearly just wasn't quite there. Uh, compared especially to Bisecki, who just made all the other Ducatis look average, but also, you know, like with Alex Marquez clearly being at least on the same level there or thereabouts, I would say. Um, but he, he can afford that. And again, I, I think he can afford losing the 20 points because there is no current points pressure from obvious title rivals, unless we've now seen enough to put Bisecki into that column. And I don't quite think so yet. You know, it's a satellite-year-old bike that will, I think, age out at least a little bit. And also, Marco, like Enea Bastianini before him, has a bit of an Achilles heel that's just a bit different, but that he needs to prove has been addressed. For Enea Bastianini, it was obviously his 
less even than his qualifying, but his starts and early stints of the race. And for Marco, it's the fact that he he wrote off so many Ducatis last year and also has already this year, I think, a couple. So, you know, it's not like Pecco Bagna is the only MotoGP rider that, you know, crashes sometimes. He's, he's okay points-wise. He's still, I think, a pretty clear championship favorite. But it's just, as, as, as Simon says, and as I said, the mental impact here will be interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm literally just jumping in to say that satellite bikes can't win championships because I say it every week in the podcast. Um, but but I think with Bez, it's particularly pronounced, and that's no offense to him with the VR46 team. But Bezeki right now looks like Bagnaia in his Primark years. Like there's loads of speed and loads of talent, but they're still learning to do. Um, and and yeah, it's gonna take it's gonna take a few more years until he's the full package. I think we're not looking at a Mark Marquez. Like he's not that guy um, in terms of raw talent. Who is? Well, exactly, exactly. I don't think any of the current grid really are. And, and funny, that's something that came up in the interview with Bagnaya, and he said that he doesn't believe he's Mark Marquez level yet. So you know, um, th- that's not meant as a slight to to Bezeki, but it's not his time yet, I think. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. So speaking of uh, title contenders that are giving Banya a bit of an easy ride at the moment, Fabio Quartararo's season hasn't really got going in, in any sense yet. And he just had a pretty horrible and, and yeah, bizarrely horrible Argentina weekend, just not on the pace, contentious incident in, in the Grand Prix. Uh, who wants to explain what on earth is going on with Quartararo this weekend? You know, I want to, I want to debate the not on the pace thing because he wasn't on the pace for most of the weekend, but when some rain started showing up suddenly, because we live in bizarro world now that has nothing to do with what came before, but suddenly Fabio Cortari was yeah, pretty damn quick. You look at his you look at his lap times in the main race, and yeah, I looked it up on lap 10, I think he's 16 seconds off the winner. Well, the, the race leader at that point. And at the finish, it's 11. Now, Bezeki did obviously ease off, but Cortari had some pretty great pace in the wet which is not something we, we usually say and it's you know it's just that his race was nerfed immediately right away what is more concerning is of course that before that throughout the whole weekend Fabio Carcharo had absolutely nothing for teammate Franco Morbidelli in the dry which is also not words we've used for three years I'd say end of 2020 yeah yeah absolutely since 2020 so 
the, the lack of dry pace is concerning as Fabio reasserted again. Not quite ready yet. Not quite ready to fight for the title. Can't even really discuss the championship situation because they're not even fighting for top fives as it stands in the dry, as it stands in the dry. Uh, and yeah, this was a this was a rough weekend. Uh, should be better at Kota, but realistically speaking, clearly this this package and this combination of rider and package is a work in progress, and have some low grip issues to ride iron out when the track isn't at pristine grip condition. So the the good news is that I think we've kind of got to the bottom a little bit of of when the bike is going to improve a little bit, sort of figuring out the timeline of when things are going to get better because. You know, I think both him and Morbidelli are of the opinion that the bike doesn't need much, that they're not missing a huge chunk like they have been for the last few years with that big speed disadvantage that they've had. Um, he, as Quattararo said, I think Val, it was last weekend, he kind of hinted at how they had had a, an RPM restriction put in place by Yamaha. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. I, I asked him about it today and he kind of denied all knowledge of ever having said it. But what we've since figured out is that it is there, um, essentially because they're waiting on some new parts coming to really unlock the, the full potential of the engine. And he did confirm that there's new exhaust coming uh, for the Hareth test in two rounds time. So not after the next round, but the Monday after the round after. Um, so so it, you know the bike is a work in progress and Yamaha are working, which is good news. Um and I don't think he was missing all that much this weekend. Part of me wonders if he was actually a little bit rattled by Morbidelli uh, delivering the pace that he did. Because, you know, it hasn't been that way for, for two years. And we know that whenever, you know, the last time that that was happening, it was getting inside Fabio's head a little bit. Um, he was a little bit rattled by, you know, by Quadraro or by, sorry, Morbidelli's amazing turnaround at the end of the season. And the way that he, you know, turned around the way that he went from being occasional race winner to championship contender, just as Quattararo went from being championship contender to a bit of a nothing at the end of that season. You know, there was a real sort of converging paths uh, of their two seasons in 2020. Um, so that was my thought in the drive, but like his wet performance was inarguably really good. Um, unfortunately, he got tackered early on in the race, um, as many other people have in the past. Um, and, and it was just gone from there. You know, he, he didn't have much else he could do with it, despite the fact that he was knocking out uh, basically, you know, the same pace as Bezeki or not far off Bezeki for the majority of the race. This seems like a great chance to talk about MotoGP stewarding, which is something we, we do with a smile quite often. Um, Quattararo, he, he seemed cross with Nakagami, but he seemed much more cross with the stewards and drew attention to some inconsistencies across the day compared to what had happened in, in Moto3. Um, Simon, you know, you, you're not the MotoGP stewards' biggest fan, and I think we all understand why. What do you make of this one? Uh, what Nakagami did to Quattararo today wasn't considerably different from what Mir did to him last week. Uh, in the sprint race at Portimao, except that Mir crashed um, as he did it. And, you know, in terms of the damage done to Quattararo's race, it was essentially the exact same thing. And Mir got a penalty and Nakagami didn't. I don't understand why. Beyond that, we saw multiple other things um, during the day that were like, 
you know, there, there was a couple of moves that whenever I saw them, I thought that that's a racing incident. Um, but they got a penalty for it. Um, the, and the one that that Fabio Quartararo obviously cited was Ayumi Sasaki's in the Moto3 race because they're close friends. And I'm sure he was as angry about uh, Sasaki getting a penalty as he was about Nakagami not getting a penalty. Um, you know, it, it, it seems like the Stewarts have decided that racing incidents now deserve a punishment, but not all racing incidents, just just some of them. Um, you know, I think there's some people who follow me on social media who think that I am adamant that every contact between every rider deserves a penalty. And I'm actually the exact opposite. I'm very much of the opinion of let them race at least a little bit. But if you're going to do that, you have to do that consistently. You you know, if contact between riders is going to be a part of MotoGP, then it has to be a part of MotoGP for everybody. It can't just be something that some people get penalized for and others don't. And for whatever reason, it really does seem like Nakagami is like untouchable by the stewards because this isn't the first time we've been talking about how did he not get penalized for that? Um, which is, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that's, you know, confirmation bias rather than an actual bias. But uh, yeah, I just don't understand anything that happens in the stewards room anymore. And unfortunately, neither does like basically any writer. For what's I do think they got one call essentially super rights and again i am actually that person that simon talks about in abstract the person who thinks that basically every racing contract should yield a uh, contact should yield a penalty of some sort i jest but i don't like the phrase racing incident i think you say racing incident when i'm not saying you simon but generally i think people online tend to use the words racing incident when they don't really want to look at a crash particularly. Ah, you know, racing incident, their paths came together, whatever. Let's not really look at it holistically or, or whatever. Um, I didn't actually mind the, and we, you know, we had an, an argument, a screaming row, a huge, a huge feud about the Ayumu Sasaki Moto3 move that you mentioned, which was on uh, wildcard rookie David Almansa for, for second place. And basically, the gist of it was that Sasaki moved him out of the way, sort of touring car style. Uh, not deliberately, not what he was trying to do, but sort of how it worked out. And for some people, that's sort of contact that's okay. For me, it was, you know, not a clean overtake. And he was asked to drop position. It wasn't a long lap, so I, I didn't mind it. Lots of people really, really did mind it, including Quartararo. And me. And you, yes. <laughs> so yeah screaming row huge feud but yeah the call the call that they got right in the race i think is maverick vinales and brad binder colliding uh being a racing incident i don't see how you penalize really anybody for that the way that went down i rewatched it a few times the nakagami thing i think is a penalty very very clear one maybe i have to rewatch it again because you know the one party that does not think it's a penalty is is taka and he was apologetic for the impact on Quartararo's race, but not actually for the move he pulled. And the other party that doesn't think it's a penalty is a MotoGP stewards looked fairly nailed on to me. And I think if either of them goes down in that crash, it's a penalty, even though that shouldn't matter that much. Like if Quartararo is down in that crash, it's 100% a penalty, like a 1,000%. If he just decides to like take a dive or something, if this was football, it's a penalty don't like that maybe have to rewatch it maybe there's something i missed because it's really MotoGP stewards make it e no I, i'm just gonna say it's really easy not MotoGP stewards make it easy but it's easy to always suspect that something is wrong 
and maybe I have to rewatch it, but I didn't, I didn't like that call very much. That actually leads into the second part of the problem with the stewards in that they have never once spoken to the media since Freddie Spencer took over. So we don't understand their thinking. Um, we don't understand why they didn't see that that was a penalty. So, you know, they remain the, uh, the enigma that they are. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know where we go with it. We just keep having the same conversation over and over again. None of the writers trust them anymore. Um, no one really, you know, puts much heed into what they say, and no one has an idea what's going to come next. Um, it's worth noting that Fabio Cordararo did something similar to someone last season, and the only person that crashed in the incident was Fabio Cordararo, and he got a long lap penalty for it. Like that, that shows the level of inconsistency here. You know, he he didn't do. In fact, he Taka did considerably more damage to Fabio's race today than Fabio did to Alicia's Pagaro's race at Qatar last year, or in uh, Assen last year, and he's and he got a long lap for it. So you know, I don't know. I just don't know. I don't understand any of it. Yeah, I when I saw the Nakagami Kotaro thing, I did think if you're going to penalise that, you're probably going to penalise five things every lap on the in the sprint race, the first few laps, because it it was kind of like that. And that's a good point. Yeah, it's it's. Di- <sighs> Also, though, MotoGP has quite an easy solution with a long lap. That is not that is not a race-destroying penalty. It doesn't mean you should penalise something you're 50-50 about penalising, but I, I think it's quite a gentle penalty to give someone. It's like a little kind of, nah, you shouldn't have done that little tap. I mean, Scott Ogden, in circumstances that I don't entirely understand, but Moto3 rider Scott Ogden eliminated... Uh, who was it? Oh, it was Almanza again. He basically eliminated Almanza from the fight, got, a, I think, a double long lap penalty for it, and that dropped him one position because when it was converted to a time penalty it really is not that prohibitive it is not the kind of thing that will prevent racers from racing so maybe they should be less reluctant in using it but matt's point is really really good because when you when you pull up that helicopter cam you you start to realize just how many times MotoGP riders get nerfed by other MotoGP riders into corners and taken wide onto entirely different racing lines that never existed going into a, a different orbit you know, going from Earth to Neptune or whatever. It's, you know. And and that's why I think that we shouldn't be penalizing the vast majority of them because where do you draw the line then? You know, I would rather the line was drawn a bit too lenient and at least we got some entertainment out of it than the alternative, which is just racing by roadbook, which is not the motorcycling way. You know, it, it's, yeah, it's not how bikes work. We uh, we mentioned Brad Binder a moment ago in the context of being taken out by Vignoles on Sunday. Let's talk about Brad Binder's Saturday because that was that was something that it was it was amazing. It was spectacular. It was brilliant. Also, where the hell did it come from? It, you know, I know I know Binder has the has these race charges and this this ability to do that. But fifteenth to first in what was it three laps? Yeah. Yeah, exp- explain this. Explain this to me. I mean, I I, I did a I did a break, breakdown on the website of basically every move most of which happened from the getaway to turn one and i i made some people really annoyed by suggesting that there was a you know a a big degree of fortune to it and by suggesting that it was really marco bezecchi's race to win which wasn't was never meant as an insult to brad binder in any way it was just more of a reflection of the fact that i don't think the ktm at this track was a bike to do that if anything the fact that brad binder got it done is amazing chapeau to him and it is because 15th to first in you know in three laps less than three laps the the final overtake was like turn 10 turn 11 on the third lap i mean 
it's it's incredible and he did basically everything right like every single move he was forceful when he needed to he bit his time when he needed bided his time when he needed to I don't think he should have won that race, but the fact that he did is massive credit to him. The fact that he soaked up the pressure from super fast Bezeki, the part, the fact, the, the fact that he managed it so well while Bezeki was fighting it through, it was just superb. And it was, it was also slight vindication to something I picked up from the data um, last year when looking through the races in anticipation of who was going to be good for the sprint, because I had some reservations about you know Brad's suitability for the sprints. Because it, it's always sort of felt like he was a bit that Bastianini style that comes on stronger in the second half of the race. So removing that is obviously a problem. But I, I looked at the data and it really came across for Bastianini. And it came across about like 30-40% for Binder. His, his problem wasn't race phases. It was always just qualifying. And it was qualifying again here, but he just completely negated all of that running up to turn one. And from there on, yeah, you can win. You had to again had to things had to go right for him even after that but did a did a fantastic job if you can hear a loud banging noise in the background of my recording i apologize but i have realized that i'm directly above the vr46 garage um, and i think there might be a small a small gathering <laughs> in there um i mean this isn't something we've this isn't new territory for brad bender necessarily because Brad Bender did stupid, crazy, awesome stuff in Moto3 as well. Um, you know, the guy won from the back of the grid. Um, he's He is impressively fast and he is the right mix of aggressive and clean that you need to be able to do something like that without pissing off everyone on the grid and maybe getting penalized by Freddie Spencer or maybe not depending on what mood Freddie Spencer's in at that exact moment. Um, but he didn't annoy anyone. You know, no one had any criticisms of the way Bender came through the field. He he just did an awesome job of it, um, which is cool. Um, that isn't a surprise, like I say, because it's something we've seen of him before. But I'm still not entirely sure how he did it, like how it actually happened, even having read your article, Val, because, you know, I think it is probably the sort of thing that you can only do once in a hundred starts because you need just you know you need the road to sort of line up in front of you it's like when you hit 10 green traffic lights in a row <laughs> yeah. you, you just you need the path to form for you um and there has to be an element of that and it doesn't take anything away from his performance to call it really fortuitous that that happened for him yeah. because he put himself in the position to take advantage of it every time every every win is a bit of luck the, of course it the is thing with the thing with bender uh, also last year is he gets you the result that is there yeah i mean that's just what he does which is which is why my assertion was you know in the off season and still is that if you put him on a ducati he might well be your championship favorite he gets you what is there if the bike was a bit better and it's clearly not bad but it can be better if it was better i mean we'd be talking about a, a championship contender. And despite what I saw in the sprint there, I, I don't think we are right now. No, I mean, Bender being at KTM is making him kind of the biggest mystery in the field, really, because he, when he when he does win a race or does you know come through the field, it, it tends to be so epic, but you've always got this, what is going on with the KTM question mark? The fact he can win from 15th one day and okay, he got taken out in the main race. It wasn't, it wasn't his fault, but to go to be 15th, 
in qualifying pace in the morning and to win like that in the afternoon that is the most KTM thing you can ever imagine happening um I did think your point about how clean he came to the field was really accurate as well Simon nothing was 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 dicey at all there but I guess as well when you have a situation where it's a low grip track people haven't tested there it's been drizzly on off weather everyone's a little bit wrong footed that is just prime territory for someone who's good at improvising and making something happen to just you know make the absolute best thing possible happen while everyone else is maybe a bit tentative maybe a bit out of sorts it's it's a it was a prime binder afternoon really yeah it was um and we should add uh regarding sunday's performance uh while they were waiting for our media debrief sessions afterwards maverick vinoy and, and him ended up together and they kind of hugged out the uh the touch between the two of them um, and he, he was pretty quick to disregard that as as having any consequence um, on on really what happened. Um, he actually said that part of the problem, part of the reason he crashed was because he was overcompensating a little bit himself. Because in the previous corner, he'd managed to have both wings ripped off the bike, both sides. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he, he said he was kind of like trying to anticipate what the bike would feel like without them, and that was as much a, a cause of the crash as any contact with Maverick Vinales was. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. So Vinales had on paper a rubbish weekend, as did basically Aprilia in general. But this was where Aprilia won last year, famously, brilliantly. And through practice, you know, Aprilia dominated Friday. Even going to Saturday morning, we were thinking this is Aprilia's race to lose. And yeah, wow, it really did lose in the end. I, you know, I just realized something and genuinely this is not like prep. I didn't realize it. I didn't come up with it an hour ago. I came up with it just now, but it, it strikes me as so accurate. Um, Maverick Vinales left Yamaha, but he accidentally brought Yamaha with him. <laughs> I mean, that's that's basically what happened. Now, you've seen this movie also, right? Friday practice, absolutely flying, very good in clean air, and then just things go wrong in all sorts of ways, whether it be rain, whether it be getting muscle down the order, whether it be in Maverick Vinales' case in the sprint, having half of his winglet set up, chopped off. Um, yeah, it's, you know what, It's it really is very much reminiscent because everybody saw it. Their pace was there for a repeat in the dry. And the grid position probably already wasn't after qualifying in mixed conditions and after neither of them got the got the call right because qualifying was partly decided by who was brave enough to go for slicks and vinales was actually to his credits because we don't often say this you know about maverick we haven't had much reason to say this but he was he was pretty good in the wet in in qualifying like he was he was one of the faster ones he was going to qualify pretty high up and he did in the end qualify as the second best runner on wets in in fifth but that's not quite enough to keep him and his Aprilia out of the wars in the opening laps. And teammate Alessia Spargaro was also in in the wars. And ultimately, that didn't go anywhere good. And then on Sunday, they were just 
absolutely dire in the wet. Absolutely shocking. So, the, yeah, the, their Saturday was compromised by their qualifying. Their qualifying was compromised by not taking the gamble to go to slicks when they really should have and when the top three did. Um, but Sunday was odd. And actually, the, the best explanation of Sunday came f- not from either of the factory riders, I think, but from Raul Fernandez uh, on the crypto data RNF satellite Aprilia because he was like, it's, so the bike is just super aggressive. Um, and he, he said, you know, they, they need to address this aggressive character of the bike, which has been something that he experienced the minute he jumped on the bike, that he's managed since then without too much of a problem, but that in the wet is just completely impossible to manage. Um, and then you know, he was the first Aprilia rider we spoke to. We spoke to Vinales and Spagaro afterwards, and they all kind of echoed what Fernandez had said, but just not in as sort of eloquent a term, I think, not in as much detail. Um, no one seems to know how they fix that, because part of it seems to be something to do with the character of the bike. Um, something, Some of it seems to be to do with how much mechanical grip the bike is generating, and some of it seems to be to do with the electronics. Um, so what they're going to do to fix that, I'm not entirely sure. Um, obviously, if, if the bike is working super well in the dry, which it was all weekend, um, it makes it difficult to then, you know, try and sort of make massive alterations to it just in the off chance you're going to have a wet race now and then. Um, it, it's, it's not an easy conundrum. It's not going to be an easy challenge for that team to solve. Uh, if it is something that's sort of inherently related to just how the bike works for them. Well, you know, Val, you made the comparison with Yamaha and how long is it we've been talking about Yamaha struggling in, in in the wet at times. An awful lot of front-running teams fall backwards when it when it rains. Maybe that's a sign of how good Aprilia's got now that it's joined that club of um, if if it rains, you're going to tumble down the field. Uh, who else? Who else should have been high up? Well, we had no Repsol Hondas on the grid again, which which actually isn't that it is uncommon, but we have had it once in the last few years uh, we mentioned the absence of Mir. obviously Mark Marquez wasn't present this weekend but we did nearly get a different Honda on the podium at least one of the other Honda riders thought they had a, a very good shot there and that was LCR's Alex Renz well, I, I think he just you know, dropped podium as a as a mention of a word that maybe looked possible when he was running top five I think upon reflection when he looks at it a bit more even even as he was speaking it, it sounded like he didn't really believe in a real podium shot and he probably wasn't on it but he certainly does feel he should have finished much better only to have massive visibility issues if i'm not mistaken that was i think the, the big problem for alex Rins. that was a problem for a, a fair few riders and i think the riders that finished worse were the ones who brought it up more which read into that correlation however you like on the one hand you know easy excuse to lean back on on the other hand, when you run further back, you're more in the spray. And the spray in Argentina wasn't just, you know, nice water. It was dust and dusty garbage that was, you know, fogging up your windscreen, was messing with your, you know, visor, requiring to use a tear off early. So, yeah, I think uh, Rookie Augusto Fernandez described the visibility as straight up zero like running with your eyes closed and he you know he did okay in the end but it sounded like maybe the lcr guys were particularly impacted for whatever reason 
Uh, so yeah, Alex Rins. Uh, are you saying Nakagami just didn't realize Quattararo was there because he couldn't see it? You know what? So I just thought he was when there. he mentioned it, I was, he moved some empty corner. I expected that to be the reason that he cites after he brought it up, but he was just uh, like, "No, actually, the overtake was on." I was really <laughs> surprised, but yeah, because I was like, "Well, it's right there. Use that. You <laughs> yeah. have it." Yeah, I mean, of the various comments, Augusto Fernandez said that he was completely blind at points. Uh, Maverick Vignali said he could see nothing from turn three to turn seven. Takanakagami actually had the inside of the windscreen of his bike fog up, which is a particularly troublesome issue when it happens. Um, Jack Miller said he used his tear-offs by the end of lap three and then was he, he pr- described particularly well hanging off the side of the bike round turn 10, which is the long sweeper, while using the other hand to try and wipe his visor. <laughs> which sounds like typical Miller goon riding, but he says it was the only way he could see where he was going. Um, you know, the, the the downside of how good the Michelin wet tires are, and we talked about this earlier in the podcast about how amazing they are, is that all that water that's on the surface has to go somewhere and it, it goes in out behind you and gets vaporized into mist that then, you know, the guys behind smash into. Um, yeah, swings and roundabouts, unfortunately. That is part of the problem of MotoGP these days. And you know, we spoke to Augusto Fernandez about it because he's kind of the one that has experience of something else recently. And he stopped himself short of saying what he really felt about the Dunlop wet tires that Moto2 uses, but it was pretty apparent. But then he also said that the visibility in Moto2 is, is better as well in a red race. Um, he also said, though, that people in MotoGP are a lot more sensible in the wet around you and they're not trying to destroy your race in every corner like the back of the Moto2 pack tends to be in the way. <laughs> Yeah, he didn't see the Quartararo thing clearly. <laughs> a couple of people who um, did make it through to the podium in Sunday's race, and I think deserve a little bit of uh, a nod of praise. Zarco, and I think the big question about Zarco is, do you leave it too late? But I also, I want to talk about Alex Marquez first, because I have this ongoing thing that I predicted on our podcast a while ago, that Alex Marquez might win a race and Mark Marquez not win a race this season. And I have to say, when Alex Marquez was on pole, and it was raining. I was thinking, yeah, this is it. I'm, I'm going to be right. Yeah, no, I, I, I didn't th- think back to your prediction, but I should have because I, you know, Alex Marquez is quite handy in the wet. So I did briefly think, oh, this, this actually might be it. Didn't quite have the pace for Pateki or Banyaya or Zarco. So should have been fourth. Banyaya crashed up. Still very, very good. Very unobjectionably good. And just generally excellent weekend. Excellent pole position. Obviously owed a lot to the to the call to switch to slicks, but yeah, you know, I have to make it work. He made it work. And he's he's good in mixed conditions. He's good in the wet. Now he's also pretty good in the dry. Still his dry qualifying is not very good. That's gonna be the one problem going forward that's really going to limit his outright potential. And that's the part that might, you know, ruin Matt's prediction. <laughs> he's not gonna win if he keeps, you know, if he keeps not being in the top ten on Friday. That's that's yeah, gonna be enough. the problem. Not it's everybody's gonna rain Brad again somewhere. It is gonna rain again somewhere. And honestly, uh I like Aragon a lot now that I think about it and now that what we've seen. Yeah, keep in mind Aragon for, for Alex Marquez and yeah, the no, Ducati. Vow, vow, keep in mind that Aragon's not in the circuit on the calendar this year. What the hell? Jesus <laughs> <laughs> It's been a long weekend. Uh, you say it's been a long weekend, but you could have, you know, you could have asked me tomorrow in the morning, and I would have still thought Aragon's there. That's my bad. Sorry. 
but yeah, no, Alex, where's he going to win then? That's a shame. That's really, yeah, that's really bummed me out on Alex Marquez's behalf. Uh, out of- <laughs> I mean, it's probably going to rain in Le Mans and he's quite handy at Le Mans. Yeah. Put him, Repsol. Uh, yeah, that's true. But it, it, sh- it should have been arrogant. <laughs> this, is a, this is an outrage. <laughs> but yeah, very good by Alex Marquez. Uh, regarding Johan Zarco, for, for, he also was told by TV crew, apparently, that, you know, did you leave it quite late? And his response was exactly what you'd expect. Like, no, I just didn't have anything in the, in, in the early phase. Uh, Johan Zarco's transforming into Enea Bastianini before our very eyes. I would say, but also this is just a very typical Zarco wet race. He just gets better the longer they go into the distance. We, we, I think we also saw that last year at Manzalika, didn't we? And he's he's just he's good in these conditions, but there's still something that he's missing right now in the early phase of the race. I, <laughs> the man has 16 podiums, and I have no idea how he's going to win a race. And I don't feel he's any closer to doing that, which is just demonstrably insane. If we get to Valencia and the title is sewn up, Valencia is the season finale, right? Or am I? Am I just? Yeah, no, you're right. Calendar? You're right. You're right. Okay, <laughs> thank thank goodness. If we get to Valencia and the title is sewn up, let's just do like a parade of honor and let him through, <laughs> and let him have the win because I'm I'm tired of this. This is unfair. Sixteen podiums and no wins is not right. Don't want this. Let him have his win. I mean, the, the Zarco response to finishing second again was quite amusing. And it kind of rounded up his day because he was just like, yeah, yeah, it's cool. It's cool. You know, he, there was no no real drama or excitement. It wasn't like the VR46 garage who are still going absolutely mental below me. Um, you know, he, he was just like, yeah, yeah, you know, we've done it again. That's nice. Um, which is, yeah, it's kind of Zarko in the rain in a nutshell at this point, isn't it? Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head there, Val. I, I don't see now how Zarco actually makes this transition into into a race winner because there's there's been so many times when it probably would and should have happened. He's settled. He's yeah. We've talked before about how Zarco's kind of settled into the being the old man of Ducati lineup. He's there to serve a really useful development function, there to be a benchmark, and he could have a few more years of doing that before heading off to probably win a world superbike title. But yeah, I'd, I'd love to see him win a race one day. But like you, yeah, right now I've got no idea how it. Um, how it actually happens still still fast yeah not like washed or anything like that but there's just always somebody out of the other seven bikes who's faster and that's just the problem yeah so it's felt like a fairly relentless few weeks of MotoGP across pre-season testing and these two seasoning opening races but we've got a slight pause now before the Grand Prix of the Americas at Austin where we should have a few more riders back on the grid including uh including someone who's quite good around that circuit. Um, us three are going to be back here in a fortnight to talk to you about everything that happens at Circuit of the Americas, and we do have a feeling we might be mentioning Mark Marquez once or twice in that podcast. He's been conspicuously absent from this one. Um, next week, Toby Moody's going to be back here with the first of his special episodes for this season. So thanks for your company through the season opening races, and we'll be back in your ears very, very soon. The Athletic. 
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.